for that long pause with the other podcast episodes. I'll be recording the thinking and problem-solving episode soon-ish. Um, but this episode is going to be all about intelligence. Um, the big thing that we will learn and review um, regarding intelligence is we don't have a single definition of intelligence, and intelligence is a really abstract concept. Um, we'll discuss theories and theorists and how they shape what we know of intelligence, and we'll also talk about different ways to measure intelligence. Um, but like I said, there is no single definition, and that's okay. Um, in class, you all are practicing, you know, how do you define intelligence? And then we'll share some examples. But I also want you to think about, you know, what do you know of intelligence? What have you been taught about what someone or what someone looks like or how someone is who is quote unquote very intelligent? Um, is that an accurate way to measure intelligence? Um, or are there others? Um, I think it's also important to think about your schooling and public education and, you know, what does an A really mean in a class? Is it you getting around the system um, and kind of, in a way, playing the game of doing assignments, following the rubric, all of that? Or do you genuinely know a topic? Um, for my I would say my experience, certain classes, of course, I, I did learn the material. And generally, that was also the classes that I didn't always get awesome grades in, um, which is just an interesting th thing to think about. And of course, that's an anecdote. It's my experience, and it might not be yours, and that's okay. Um, but I really want you to think inward um, about this uh, section of our cognition unit just because, you know, it's it's very, very relevant um, to your life, specifically your own education. So, <coughs> like I said before, there is no single definition for intelligence. Um, you know, asking the question, who is the smartest person in the world? We'd probably all come up with different responses, and that's okay. Um, but the important thing is, is we can't measure intelligence unless we define it. So we have to come up with that operational definition, aka taking that abstract concept of intelligence and making it measurable. That's a really important aspect of operational definitions. I mean, think about psychology as a whole. All of psychology, we are operationalizing these abstract concepts, and intelligence is one of them. So when you think about, again, defining intelligence, of course, we know we have to but it's still really hard to do. When we think of some abstract definitions, possible definitions of intelligence, it could be the ability to think creatively or even the ability to apply knowledge to new situations. But we have to operationalize those. How can you measure them? Remember, measuring something has to be quantified in some way. That's a really important part of science. Um, <coughs> so what we've done 
is we've taken those abstract concepts and operationalized them. So tr generally, when we look back at traditional intelligence tests, many were verbal tests, which made it very easy to grade and then compare results from one person or one group of people or population to the next. Now, what's associated with operationalizing intelligence is this big term called reductionism. And I want you to take the first part of that word to really think of it, to, you know, reduce. So we're reducing a concept, intelligence, to a number. It's not always a good thing. And in the case of intelligence, it's actually a pretty bad thing. It leads to extreme bias in creating tests and actually measuring intelligence. And so it also poses the question of, well, can we even count intelligence? Is it even possible if what we're doing isn't a good thing? So again, there's no answer to it and that's okay. Um, but a lot of today we're just thinking internally. So a bit of vocab before I get into intelligence theories um, regarding measuring intelligence. So I'm kind of just going to run through the through these words. So a big word um, of basically measuring intelligence and what it is called, instead of saying measuring intelligence, you, we can say psychometrics. And so psychometrics will be used in order to measure the mind. Um, now, how? And how are we actually measuring the mind? Another term pops up, and it's important to know, and it's the speed of processing, where <coughs> generally the speed of processing is, is pretty easily measured. It's the rate at which you respond to a question. Um, and there is a correlation with your speed of processing and intelligence. There's the positive correlation there. There, you know, in other words, because it's positively correlated, the faster your speed of processing is generally the higher your intelligence is. But again, what is a high intelligence? It it's okay that we don't know quite yet. Um, and an another important side note here with this positive correlation, remember, correlation does not mean causation. We're going to reiterate that throughout today. I don't want you ever to think, you know, your worth as a student, as a learner, as a person goes down to that letter grade or whatever your IQ is. That's not the case. Um, some other vocab terms that are very important regarding, you know, big topics of intelligence. We have two different types, fluid and crystallized. And we're actually going to come back to these when we get to our developmental unit because these two types of intelligences are actually connected to age. Uh, when we think about fluid intelligence, I want you to think about it's related to the speed of processing something. It's a quick way of thinking, similar to a computer. When we think of fluid intelligence, it generally peaks around your mid-20s and then just slowly declines as we age, which makes sense. I mean, think of compare yourself with... Um, coming to a conclusion or thinking abstractly, um, trying to reason out a problem compared to potentially one of your grandparents, you're probably able to think through it faster than your grandparent is and maybe even potentially your parents. Um, and then on the other hand, we have crystallized intelligence. There is, it is related to heuristics and when we think of that, you can also think of shortcuts here, but I also want you to think about how 
crystallized intelligence happens over time. It's all about we, we gain this type of intelligence through living, through our experience. It's very related to top-down processing even. When you think of crystallized intelligence, <coughs> it's still important to be aware that, you know, as we age, we do get slower at processing things. However, the knowledge that we've gained as we age increases. So think, you know, comprehension, having judgment, having wisdom. And it does steadily increase over time until about 70 years old. And we'll review these two types of intelligences again with our developmental unit. Um, the last important term I guess two more, um, the Flynn effect. Uh, this is not related to our principal, Mr. Flynn. This Flynn is from New Zealand. Um, and what he came up with was he noticed there was a trend that over time, the average IQ of society actually has increased, which has led to us having to recalibrate traditional IQ tests and even rethink, you know, what is quote unquote an average score and we've had to you know re-standardize those tests and we'll review what that standardized word means at the end now again there is this continued dispute of what is intelligence we're aware that it has to do something with cognition obviously we're in our cognition unit but which ones how do we measure them is it the speed at which you answer something and that's connected to speed of processing is it the accuracy of your answers? Is it your ability to solve problems? And then which is more important? Crystallized fluid intelligence? Again, I don't need an answer here, but these are really important questions to think about as we're seeking to understand, well, what is intelligence and how do we measure it? So there's one last vocab word <coughs> that I've been talking around and we can use them interchangeably. It's reductionism and also this other fancy word called reification, which again is taking that abstract concept and treating it as something concrete. It's not always a good thing. And in the case of intelligence, there aren't very positive things about this. Um, it, again, leads us to continue to question, can we actually have a single definition of such an abstract concept? So a couple other things before we get into the different theories, but we have the highs and lows of intelligence. Um, so one of the uh, <laughs> potential highs of intelligence is savant syndrome. And what this is, is a genius-like ability in a quite a narrow area. An example of someone being a savant would be if that person is able to multiply large number of uh, large numbers instantly and not just you know taking 30 seconds it's fast um, now something important to note here which will actually return back to this in our future unit um, with developmental psych savant syndrome is related to autism spectrum disorder there is a slight overlap there meaning there's a small correlation of someone having autism spectrum disorder and savant syndrome but again it doesn't it's not like one causes the other or vice versa people who have savant syndrome aren't all on the autism spectrum and again people who are have autism spectrum disorder 
aren't all savants in a particular area. There's just a small correlation there. But again, remember, correlation does not mean causation. And then on the other side of intelligence, there's a low, and it's called <coughs> the stereotype threat. Um, when we think of the stereotype threat, I want you to think of it's all about members of a group who thought to be less than in particular areas perform worse in that area than members of a different group, okay? And generally when this happens, it's when a particular group is reminded of a possible stereotype. Um, think about, you know, when we take SATs and PSATs, and for some reason I can't think off the top of my head if, it, if they do this for AP exams or not, but they generally ask you your race and you bubble in your race or ethnicity um, or check off or write it down. It probably depends on the, the test. That's a potential example of leading into the stereotype threat where a group of people are reminded of their race and if their race had been told for generations and generations and generations that they're less than others, that they're less than people who are white, that can lead to an actual lowering in their score of the test that they're taking. Um, and so it's important to be able to recognize that, that being or acknowledging a stereotype or being reminded of a stereotype is actually a confounding variable of test scores. Um, and it's important to be knowledgeable and aware of that, especially if you ever go into, you know, creating tests or writing tests um, or studying them in more depth. So now I'm gonna get into um, the different types of intelligences um, with different theories and people. Again, it's important to keep in mind that it, asking the question, can you actually put one number to measure intelligence? Psychology is constantly evolving. It's okay that we don't know exactly what intelligence is. Of course, it'd be nice to know, um, but we're gonna go and talk about different theories and people that we should be very familiar with in the end. So the first, I'm going to go kind of in chronological order, but like I said in class, you're not ever going to need to know these dates. It's not a history class, but for some of us, knowing the story of how intelligence has been evolving could help us actually remember it in turn. So First guy is Francis Galton. Um, he is actually going to be the first to think intelligence can actually be quantified. He'll use psychometrics. Again, that's just a fancy word for measuring the mind. He's going to kind of use something similar to introspection, but to be honest, you don't need we don't need to know his experiment. Of course, you know, it there's way more information that we could go into regarding these people. We're just doing surface level stuff. Um, <clears throat> what Galton looked at was actually seeing if there's a correlation um, between reaction times and intelligence. So it's, it's similar to like the speed of processing, a vocab term that we talked about earlier. Now, something important to acknowledge with Galton is he does believe in eugenics. And I'll mention this a couple times in class. Um, and if you are curious about this and the effect that believing in eugenics, how it affected intelligence tests to the modern era is actually really, really fascinating. Um, if you're curious, you can listen to Radio Labs G, 
series. We're actually going to talk about G in a moment. Um, but anyway, it's important to acknowledge the okay stuff and good stuff about these guys, but the also not so great stuff. So Galton, again, believed in eugenics. He believed that success was due to inherited mental traits. So he believed that better people should be encouraged to in reproduce. And I'm putting better in quotes. And then again, quote, quoting less able people should be restricted for reproduction. Then we go into our next guy, um, Alfred Binet. Um, Binet is French. You do need to, should know where he's from, to be honest. Um, and the reason why is the uh, system that he, or the test that he comes up with is specifically used in France, um, specifically for the school-aged children. So it was a very small population of people taking this test. That test will be revised um, and will <coughs> change and be altered to um, be able to be used in larger populations. But Binet is going to come up with this first test to actually classify mental abilities. Why is he doing this? He wants to help France's school system identify children who were struggling compared to their peers. So what he needed to figure out was um, what would their quote mental age be? Um, and how he did it was gathering information about abilities of children at each age. So. He then figured out from lots and lots of data what was, quote, normal for a child to be able to do at a particular age. Um, so what he's going to use is those ideas of what is normal to compare individuals against their mental age compared to their chronological age. So <coughs> he took a mental age, which is, again, a very abstract concept, but he quantified it. Again, looking at data, looking at where children would fall normally, um, and then divided it by their chronological age and multiplied it by 100 to get their intelligence quotient, or IQ. Um, so in other words, let's say you, you have a 10-year-old kid. Um, so that is their chronological age. And they happen to have their mental age also of 10. Um, using Binet's data. You don't need to know exactly how that data was basically extrapolated, but he would take the 10 of their mental age divided by 10 their chronological age, obviously get one, um, multiply by 100, so their IQ would be 100 or intelligence quotient would be 100. Let's say you had a child with a mental age of eight, but their chronological age was also 10. You would multiply that score by 100 and get 80. So their IQ or intelligence quotient would be 80. Sometimes the AP exam has asked you to solve for the intelligence quotient, but it hasn't been anything impossible to do. You can, we don't have calculators on the math, or on, yikes, on the psych test because it's not a math class, um, but you should be able to use the mental math there. All right, then we have Lewis Terman. So 
Terman is actually going to take Alfred Binet's test and reconfigure it so it can be taken in the United States. And because he worked at Stanford University, he called it the Stanford Binet test. Um, it's important to be able to <laughs> associate Terman with that test. Um, why is it important? Why do we care? Well, we're able to use it with a larger population. It's not just limited like Binet's test, but it's also important to note with Terman, he is also a proponent of eugenics. A number of early cognitive psychologists like Terman um, will use these tests to justify particular racist ideas, um, thinking of segregation, um, segregation of schools, different books, different teachers, busing even, um, and also restrictive immigration policies. Again, if you're curious in this and how this has evolved over time, I highly recommend that podcast series, G, by Radiolab. It's awesome. All right, next guy, who actually kind of departs and detaches himself from the traditional intelligence measurements, and his name is David Weschler. Um, <coughs> two intelligence scales, he'll have more than just these two, but the two that the AP exam wants us to be relatively familiar with is the WAIS, or the Weschler Adult Intelligence Scale, and then the WISC, which also could be referred to as the WISC test, and that's the Weschler Intelligence Scale for children. What's significant about Weschler's tests is that he didn't focus on the age-based system and believed that intelligence was more than just verbal skills. So if you take a look at his the Weschler intelligence scales and the intelligence tests, he's also going to focus on nonverbal performance such as spatial awareness, pattern work, and this is pretty significant because it does detach, it departs from that traditional testing, but also helps reduce bias against those who were not verbally skilled or potentially for or someone who is an English language learner where English is not their first language and it helps you know with that as well. Next guy is Howard Gardner. Um, he is going to say intelligence cannot be put into a number um, and we're going to focus on the multiple intelligence theory of Gardner. Um, he will come up with a total of eight different intelligences. Um, there has never been an AP, um, let's say FRQ, that said define all eight and give examples. That's not been the case. Um, you should be pretty familiar with looking at an example or an application of one of these eight or all of the eight intelligences and being able to, you know, pick from a list, okay, that is an example of a linguistic intelligence and so on and so forth. So to go dive right into the first type of multiple intelligences, according to Howard Gardner, um, <coughs> the linguistic intelligence would be a high or a strong aptitude um, for written or verbal communication. If you think of, you know, someone who would generally, according to Gardner, have a higher or be a linguistic intelligence person would be someone who is a journalist, an author even, or a poet. Um, I mentioned Martin Luther King Jr. in class. 
Um, another type of intelligence is logical, mathematical. Um, think of someone having an aptitude for very abstract concepts like if-then statements, aptitude for mathematics beyond just the concrete counting of things that are easily seen. So someone in the job field of being an engineer, using statistics, even finance. Um, the person that I mentioned in class was Stephen Hawking as someone, according to Gardner, who would have a really strong or high logical mathematical intelligence. Next one is musical. It's obviously an aptitude for music that's, that's quite apparent just from the name, but it goes beyond that. And I pose the question, you know, can someone actually think in music? I certainly cannot. So I'm not really sure what that is personally, but I brought up two musicians that I like, and I'm sure you all made fun of me, um, but Billy Joel and Taylor Swift. Anyway. Next one, spatial, an aptitude for where things are. Um, so where things are located in space for the most part. Um, gamers are actually, they have, could be, have high spatial intelligence, same as an air traffic controller and even like a driver without an app. So think like taxi drivers before smartphones, which I don't know if you all can even think of that. I can, but yeah, not using an app. The next one is bodily kinesthetic, which actually paves the way into reviewing what our kinesthetic system is. Uh, we learned about it from one of our senses in our sensation unit. When we think of kinesthetics or kinesthesis, um, it's important to think about it's the knowledge and awareness of where our limbs or body parts are located in space. We know how our body is moving, where each limb is, and again, where our overall body is in space. Think athletes, dancers, gymnasts even. Um, an important term associated with kinesthetics or kinesthesis is proprioception. So basically what this is, is if you close your eyes, wave your arms around and stop, do you know where your arms are? If so, that is proprioception. You're aware of your body parts in space. Um, don't get the kinesthetic slash proprioception mixed up with our vestibular system. Vestibular system is all about balance with our our head and the rest of our body. And if our head is imbalanced, so is the rest of our body. That's different than our kinesthetic sense. The next intelligence is intrapersonal. I'll say that again, intrapersonal. I like to think of it as self-smart, where you have an aptitude for knowing your thoughts and feelings. Think of someone who is very in tune and in touch with their own mental health. Doesn't mean that you have to be happy all the time, of course not, but you're aware of if you're super anxious, this is what you need to do. If you're sad or having potentially depressive thoughts, this is what you should do. If you're happy, this is what you should do, and so on and so forth. The next one is interpersonal. I'll say that again, interpersonal. I like to think of this as people smart. It's having an aptitude for reading others. Salespeople generally have strong interpersonal skills. Gardner would say they're higher on that part of multiple intelligences. Therapists as well. I'd argue that teachers also have, you know, they're pretty people smart. I would like to think of myself as being higher there on, you know, Gardner's multiple intelligence theories, but 
Again, that is just my opinion. <laughs> the last one is a naturalist. Um, it's pretty self-explanatory here. Think botanist or farmers. Um, this is something that I don't have whatsoever. Everything that I try and grow dies. Um, it's pretty sad. And it's the aptitude for understanding the connectedness of nature. Um, I'm not good at this. I wish I were. All right. That brings us into, we just have two more, Charles Spearman. He is going to come up with a two-factor theory. Um, <coughs> so we have multiple intelligences with um, Gardner, and then we have um, Spearman with the two-factor theory. He, he believed a couple things, and he, he's kind of interesting. What he's going to use is factor analysis to figure out and basically group different factors that are similar, um, and he'll figure out how they occur together and when they occur together. This is quite abstract to think about. Um, we'll talk about factor analysis again and how it's used actually with personality assessments in our personality unit. Um, but the important thing is just associating Spearman with the use of factor analysis in order to figure out different factors that are similar that occur together. Um, so he believes that we actually do have one intelligence levels, but we could also have other specific mental abilities, hence two-factor. So he's going to call our one singular general intelligence level G, actually, um, little g, um, and it's for general mental ability. This is kind of why that um, podcast series is named G. Um, then... <coughs> He said, you know, again, part of that two-factor theory, we could have specific mental abilities um, that would fall outside of what he called G. And, of course, it's called little s. Not super creative, to be honest, um, but he's kind of like, t in my opinion, taking the middle ground approach from Alfred Binet and Terman and then being the middle ground for those two compared to Gardner. So he's like that middle approach. All right, same as Sternberg, okay? So Sternberg will be our last guy, Robert Sternberg, and he's going to come up with a triarchic theory of intelligence. So tri meaning three, three different aspects of intelligence. Um, he is additionally going to differ from traditional psychometric tests. He believes that intelligence cannot exist in a test. It's actually how we interact in our environment or how we up basically apply ourselves to our environment. Um, and he breaks it down into three key parts, hence the triarchic theory. So one can have practical intelligence, which is basically how well someone can function in their environment. It's a very realistic approach to solving problems or answering questions. Um, you could also have an experiential um, part of your intelligence, which is basically how well you can handle a new situation. It takes a very creative approach to solving problems. And then lastly, an analytical approach, which is how well a person can find the right answer. And when you think of this, I want you to think of like traditional academic skills. Okay, so now I'm going to get into the last bit, which is just how intelligence is measured. Um, there are three key parts to this, and of course the parts have different subsets. Um, but I want you to ask yourself, you know, have you ever taken an online intelligence test? A lot of you probably have, um, but it's also important to note 
of, well, what is that test actually measuring? Um, is it, was it an actual intelligence test? Was it even a real test? Um, was it measuring something other than intelligence? It's important to be aware of that because <laughs> different tests lead to different answers and different things that they're actually measuring. So a real intelligence test needs to have three key things as of now. Obviously, it could evolve over time, but it's standardization, reliability, and validity. So the first thing is standardization, and I'm going to come back to it when I try and um, overview the normal curve through a podcast, which is probably going to be hard. Um, but it's important to think of when we think standardization, you should jump to the normal curve. Um, and <coughs> we learned about normal curves or the bell curve back in unit one. So it is a review. And the big thing with standardization is against what is an individual score compared? Um, it's all about comparing your score against a bunch of others. And how do we get there is the key part. What happens with standardization or how to get a test to be standardized, you give many, 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 many sample pretests to many, 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 many people before that actual test is administered. Think of the field questions. It's been a really long time since I've taken an SOL or an AP test or an SAT um, test, but they do standardized those. There are field questions um, to kind of feel out the room. Um, and what they do, and I'm saying they, it's very ominous sounding, but what they do, they take the pretests and look at the scores. They look at the number of answers people got right. And generally what happens is a pattern develops. And as that pattern develops, that test becomes standardized where the most people, the greatest number of people will get some of the questions right. Not all, but some. Very few people get most questions wrong. And then on the other end, very few people get most questions right. So the majority of those scores fall somewhere in the middle of that curve and it becomes the bell looking curve. And I'll talk about it in a moment, but let me get to the last two parts of measuring intelligence. And it's reliability. <coughs> the big thing with reliability is the stability of the results. And something to question is, are the results stable over time? If you take a test and get a really high score and then take a different version of the same test in order to, to uh, avoid bias and get a low score on the second one, that test is not reliable. Reliability is all about the consistency of scores, the stability of scores. So what happens is a good test must correlate, there must be some connection or a relationship with another version of the test in order to be reliable. How do we do that? We use a specific method, of course we're complicating things, a specific method called split half method. And it helps ensure that there is a correlation there. Basically, if the split half method shows that the particular test taker does way better on one part of a test and not the other, that test, again, does not have reliability. The higher the correlation in the split half method, the higher the reliability. So an example of the split, uh, split half method working would be 
questions one through five or one through ten would be the first half of the test and that person missed one or two of those questions and then the second half of the test would be questions 11 through 20. let's say they again missed one or two questions that would lead to a pretty strong correlation there hence there is reliability the last part, which is the most important part, and of course most complicated part, is validity. It is the most important issue. College Board really wants us to know that, so I'm emphasizing it, and I will again and again in class. Um, what's important to note here is that just because a test is potentially reliable does not automatically mean that it's valid. An example would be, let's say your bathroom scale says that you aren't gaining weight, but your clothes um, are getting tighter and you're realizing, oh, these leggings don't fit anymore or this shirt doesn't fit. Um, that broken scale, of course, is reliable. It's leading to consistent measurements, but it's not actually measuring your weight. The big thing with validity is the test is measuring what it is intended to measure or even predict. Um, does an intelligence test actually measure one's intelligence or does it just measure how well you do on intelligence tests? It's important to think about. Um, validity is hard to have for a number of these tests. We're going to talk about um, <coughs> uh, personality tests and I'll probably hurt a lot of your all's feelings about like the Myers-Briggs test, which I love, but it actually isn't valid. Um, and we'll talk about why once we get there. We'll review these terms um, further along this year. Okay, so like I said earlier, because validity is most important, we have to know some more terms with validity. Um, if a test has content validity, let's say um, the AP exam only asked you about neurons and neurons firing, that would mean that that particular AP exam has a really low content validity. We're learning way more than just the firing of neurons. That's a very small part of our entire year. Um, the AP exam should encompass all of our units. If it doesn't, it does not have content validity. The next one is construct validity. It's similar to operational, or sorry, operationalization or operationalizing particular definitions. Um, and the important thing here is how can that abstract idea of intelligence be translated into something that can be measured? It's hard to do, but it's all about taking that abstract idea and making sure it's actually measurable. Criterion validity is a big, think of like different criteria here. Does your score on the test correlate or connect in some way to an outside measure. Let's say a test score on a particular IQ test says that someone is a genius. They have an IQ of 140, um, but that person routinely uses the wrong end of the fork. That should make you question, you know, that, that test probably doesn't have criterion validity. The last, the last one, which I think is the most significant one for you all, is predictive validity. The big thing here is, it kind of speaks for itself, but it's how well a test actually predicts future performance. However, 
This only works for really large sets of data and can only predict a trend. Um, it's just a trend, it's not a causation thing here. Um, standardized tests don't have predictive validity for individuals. Think the SAT here, okay? Um, your score on the SAT does not determine how smart you are. They like to say that the SAT is used to test basically how well you'll do in college, but to be honest, that's not always the case. Um, they do not have, it does not have predictive validity for you as an individual, which is significant to think about. All right, the last thing that I said is standardizing we're going to refer back to the standardization and wrap it up with a good old review of a normal curve, aka the bell curve. So when standardizing a test, scores will fall into a pattern where the majority of the people get most or get some of the questions right. Very few people get most questions wrong and fewer and fewer people get most questions right. That pattern here is standard. This is what happens. But we know that not all scores are average. They will deviate from that average score, which leads us to coming up with standard deviation. Um, how much the, the data points or the scores in this case vary from that average score or the mean. So then we're presented with the normal curve or a bell curve. And I'm using the Weschler Adult Intelligence Scale actually to talk about this, where the average score on this IQ test is 100. That is that IQ score. And what's important to know, and this is something that is just we need to memorize, is the standard deviation here is 15. Memorize it. So if you go one standard deviation below the mean or below 100, you get 85. And then one above the mean, you get 115, okay? What's important to note is that 68% of the individuals will fall within one standard deviation. Most of the scores fall between 85 and 115 on this particular IQ test. Um, about 95% of the people then fall within the range of two standard deviations or 30 points from the mean, so 70 to 130, and then 2% fall in the range of 70 or below. And if someone is in that range, we classify them of having an intellectual disability. And then if someone scores 130 or above, it's less than 2% will score in that range. But if someone does score in that range, we will classify them as gifted. This is an important review. I'm talking through it because we've already learned normal curves and that 68, 95%, 2% rule, which is something that you just need to memorize here. Um, so if you feel like you need more support, reach out. Um, but it's also helpful to actually look at this normal curve, which is the second to last slide on our intelligence presentation for today, slide 39. Um, but yeah, awesome. All right, well, I'm shocked that I got through this in like one recording. Um, but yeah, thank you for listening. Thank you.